Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. New restrictions on protests in public spaces. Sarah Everard's murder and vigil shines a light on spatial inequality. And France's anti-demolition architects Lacaton Vassal win the Pritzker Prize. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My special guest this week Una Ryder and Phineas Harper. Una is a member of Abolitionist Futures and Finn is director of Open City. Una, Finn, welcome to the show. Hi Merlin. Hi Merlin, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Our first story is the new Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is so far yet to be covered by London's architectural media, but will have profound implications on civil liberties in public space, including the right to protest. The legislation, approved following a two-day debate in the House of Commons, despite opposition from Labour, has been criticised by former Shadow Attorney General Shami Chakrabarti. Writing in The Guardian, Chakrabarti criticised the new rules as dangerous, wrongly authoritarian, and timed in particularly bad taste following the forceful breakup by police of a vigil to murdered Londoner Sarah Everard. Now, the government's latest reforms give police even more powers to stop protests causing disruption to the public. The new rules include enforcing start and finish times, maximum noise levels on static protests, and the introduction of a 10-year prison sentence for protests which, quote, cause serious annoyance. Under the new rules, even statues will be offered greater protection against attack, with a 10-year sentence for people who damage them. Una, what's this all about? Why is the right to free protest such an important part of life in a city like London? Does this new legislation undermine Londoners' rights to free assembly and free speech? Um, yeah, this new le- legislation absolutely undermines Londoners' rights to free assembly and speech. Um, well, everyone's right to free, free assembly and free speech. Um, the legislation is draconian and terrifying. I mean, we've been seeing an encroachment on the right to protest over really a matter of, of decades, but particularly with the Tory government and particularly with Boris Johnson's government. I mean, we remember him as London mayor, famously buying the water cannon that even the uh, the Metropolitan Police thought was too dangerous to use on protesters. Um 
So the new legislation is particularly worrying um, because it puts, obviously, additional restrictions on protests, like you mentioned. It, it essentially means that you would need to get permission from police for every aspect of a protest, that they could shut it down at any point. You would be at risk of um, criminalization of prison sentences if you don't adhere by police guidance that you might not even know about. So um, it allows the police to shut down a protest or arrest people for not adhering to guidelines that they apparently ought to know about. It also expands the zone outside parliament where people aren't allowed to protest, so kind of reducing the potential for um, disruption and effective protest. It also um, includes this idea that protests shouldn't be a nuisance so there's the phrase serious annoyance that's being used in this bill that if, if a protest causes serious annoyance to anyone then it can be shut down so it basically gives police license and government license to decide when and where they think protests should be happening and it stops protests from really being effective absolutely i mean it's certainly interesting how in a city like london where the center is full of so much economic activity and so many cars and things rushing around for a lot of us who live out in the suburbs or in outer london uh, protests are one of the few times we actually go in there and walk through whitehall or, or spend a long amount of time in trafalgar square or parliament square suddenly it's free of cars and it's an amazing place but finn you know why are london's public spaces and the freedom and safety of all people but especially women and minority groups to enjoy them so important right now i mean are we risking a big step back here with with new rules like this um yeah it's an it's an enormous step back uh like uh, sort of no it's hard to overstate how um, serious this this bill is and the impact it will have on on everybody's freedom of speech but in in particular uh there are kind of aspects of the bill that are are directly and very explicitly targeting uh, minorities, particularly the traveller community and, and, and gypsy travellers, which was, you know, that was a, a, a very explicit pledge within the, the Conservative Party manifesto. So we saw this coming, uh, but it's still pretty grim that it's now going through Parliament and might become law unless unless this bill can be stopped. Um, so the, the big change is that uh, the bill is going to make trespass intentional trespass a criminal offense rather than a a, a civil offense um now that is uh that might sound like a semantic change but that's a pretty serious change for people who rely on being able to travel around the country for their their way of life and for 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 having somewhere to live um so there was a landmark ruling last year um in january in which the the london borough of bromley was refused an application for an injunction that would have banned um, traveller communities from the borough. And the judge who threw out that injunction said that uh, if local authorities continue attempting to criminalise traveller encampments, uh, they would ultimately become in breach of human rights legislation. And uh, I've got a quote here from from the judge in that Bromley case. So they said, the obvious solution uh, is the provision of just more designated transit sites for the gypsy and traveller community. Um, The absence of sufficient transit sites has been repeatedly stymieing any coherent attempt to deal with the issue. The reality is that without such sites, unauthorised encampments will continue and attempts to prevent them may well put local authorities concerned in 
breach of the convention, meaning the, the, you know, the, the human rights convention. Um, so the problem is very, very clear. Um, we need to be providing more sites for traveller communities. We as city designers, as city makers, as urban planners and architects need to start um, taking the, this provision of land for, for travellers more seriously. That's really easy to do, right? You know, this, this is a, essentially an urban design question. Uh, you could very um, easily imagine how that could be built into the planning system. But what we're, we're seeing is instead of, of, of taking those steps to kind of fix the problem, the government instead is turning it into a kind of horrible dog whistle to single out travellers uh, for, for a very tough time in, I think, probably the hopes of winning votes among uh, kind of more xenophobic corners of the electorate who like the idea of, of, of travellers being bullied for a bit. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about police a lot in this show, but it's, it's striking that even the National Police Chief Council in 2018 um, argued that this, this new legislation was a bad idea. They said, trespass is a civil offence and in our view it should remain so. Uh, and the, the idea there was that if it became a criminal offence, um, they thought that would just lead to bad outcomes, both for communities, for police forces and for the travellers themselves. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, what I'm hearing from Finn is that an inclusive public space is, is a design problem. It's something that we, we can we can do. And I'm thinking, coming back to protests, what does an inclusive protest look like, Una? Yeah, how can we hold power to account while also respecting all Londoners and, and making these activities something which, which you couldn't possibly criticise? Well, I mean, it's difficult to create something that you can't possibly criticise. I mean, I think often a lot of the strategy of protest is about that polarisation, is kind of putting putting down a clear message and really forcing people to take a side on that. I think Black Lives Matter was such an incredible example of that where they made a non-negotiable message of Black Lives Matter, Britain is a racist country that needs to commit to the work of transformation. And what that does is actually create a conversation where people have to put themselves down on either side of that. So I think... And that's part of what is the problem in the language around this bill is they're kind of setting up the idea that we can have a protest that's going to be lovely and gentle for everyone and everyone's going to agree with it and it's not going to disrupt anything and that's the good kind of protest and the bad kind of protest is the one that XR does and the one that, that Black Lives Matter does and the one that these these bad, these disruptive, these dangerous protesters do. I think for me what an inclusive protest uh, which holds power to account looks like is what um, Sisters Uncut and Black Lives Matter have been doing this week is calling these demonstrations where they um, refuse to um, ask for permission for the police, they refuse to put um, members of their community at risk by liaising with the police and by sharing information um, and it's a celebratory space and it's something it's a protest that reclaims space so seeing the images of um, of mainly young people, women, people of colour, queer people filling up Parliament Square in this actually kind of celebratory yet angry way that kind of refuses to be intimidated by the police that are surrounding them. For me that's what an inclusive um, protest looks like. And I mean, how could the law be tailored to enhance this? We need to let people use public space for democratic participation that that shouldn't be a criminal justice matter i don't know why police need to turn up at protests in my experience of protests 
that is always where the dangerous situations have happened and where the violence has sparked is um, from police coming in and causing that violence. Um, so in terms of the space, it's like having those public spaces where people can congregate. You know, we've got this situation in London where so much of the space that you think is is public is actually private and that you can be prosecuted for being on or that you find out that you can't organize a protest on. Netpol, the Network for Police Monitoring, have done a lot of work on this. They've got a petition that you can sign at the moment. Um, against the police crime sentencing in courts bill but also this includes a, a charter for protecting the freedom to protest um so this is having having the freedom to protest protected in law but also things like um having protested protesters protected from police violence so actually the violence that we saw at the vigil for sarah everard on saturday although shocking to a lot of people is standard practice for protest policing that waiting until it's dark waiting until most of the media have gone home coming in swooping in snatching people breaking it up intimidating people and making them feel uncomfortable about going out to protest again that's something that has been happening for years and years and years um and putting something in law that would protect people's right to be there and would prevent that kind of violence being enacted on them is really important. There's a bit of a wake-up call here for well, some of the architects working in, in London because for the last few years, there's been an, uh, an enormous amount of conversation about POPs, uh, privately owned, publicly accessible spaces. Uh, and the the kind of narrative has, has been very strongly that, you know, uh, the privatisation of, of pieces of London... Um, so places like King's Cross, the sort of the Argent estate around that has been a bad thing uh, because land that was uh, kind of free and in the public sphere has suddenly become controlled by a private company, which then patrols that um, that that land with private security guards and things like protest and busking and um, uh, begging suddenly become uh, policed by that private private security firm but i guess what this bill shows us is that actually it's not enough for land to be publicly owned or publicly policed we also have to have the protections for citizens uh, in those 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 spaces so you know focusing the entire discourse on making sure that land is publicly owned rather than privately owned um is not enough when you have a government as as kind of committed to uh, eroding civil liberties and to very authoritarian policing as as the current government is. Absolutely, and um, you know I heard obviously Parliament Square being mentioned there, and like we're thinking about you know a genuinely public space for free protest, but at the same time, this new legislation uh, includes. Um, uh, sentences for protesters who target or damage statues, you know, and Parliament Square is a place with a lot of statues. So, I mean, does, is this is it, what we're really seeing is a move in the complete opposite direction? I mean, perhaps this is something. Is it is this pretty over the top, Finn? Yeah, it's very uh, it's very over the top to to put such such draconian uh, rules in place to protect inert lumps of bronze and stone and steel. 
uh, that the, are our kind of monumental statues around around London. I, my 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 sense is that that's partly just another dog whistle trying to kind of a- appeal to you know, spectator columnists and uh, a kind of niche of the electorate who get particularly incensed about statues. I'm going to sort of steal a, a, an argument from the, the historian Tom Wilkinson here, who talks um, about the monument against fascism, which was built in Hamburg in 1986 by conceptual artists uh, Esther Goertz and Jochen Goertz. Um, it was a kind of 12 metre column covered in lead and um, visitors to the, the, this monument against fascism were invited to inscribe whatever they liked into the lead. And then every, um, every sort of a few weeks after the, the, the column had com- been completely scrawled over, it was lowered into the ground in a ceremony until another bit of clean lead was ready to scrawl over. And so gradually over time, the entire statue disappears into the ground and completely vanishes and that this you know raises all sorts of of questions about what it is to deal with um uh, a fascist history and the kind of urge to want to remember and simultaneously forget um those crimes now that is a complex and nuanced piece of public art that didn't care at all whether or not the 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 kind of the object was permanently on show in fact the whole point of it was that it disappeared and by disappearing it becomes more powerful and more poignant than if it had just sort of stuck around forever so i I feel like we've 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 really like dumbed down the national conversation about what a statue is for and and the kind of moves that public artists can make to uh, tap into sort of horrible uh, and glorious moments from from the past that are worthy of commemorating in all sorts of different ways uh, and frankly, I, I hope we all kind of grow up a little bit and start to have a more mature conversation about art and public art because it's getting a bit much. So there's two things going on, I think, with with that uh, 10 years for defacing a statue uh, piece of the legislation. And and one is that it's it's the culture war. It plays really well to a section of the electorate and it kind of, um, yeah, it divides people in this really specific way. The other thing is that it's, and this is, this is the problem with all of these broad pieces of legislation. It's a broad sweeping piece of legislation that is on the face of it unenforceable. It's ridiculous. You can't lock up every single person who might damage a statue for 10 years. But what happens with these deliberately broad pieces of legislation is it just means it's more it's more discretion for the police, it's more discretion for the government, and then they use that to target and punish who they want. So Network for Police Monitoring did um, an investigation into the policing of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 and found a disproportionate, um, disproportionate use of force and violence on those uh, protesters. Now, they were using powers that were available to them for any protest, and that they do use on lots of different protests, but they use them disproportionately on this protest because it was specifically challenging to the police and because the way that crime functioned, the idea of crime and what is criminalised and who the British public have in their mind as criminal as criminals is racialized. So the targeting of Black Lives Matter protesters by the police was racist in that instance and and they've used their discretion and their very broad sweeping powers to target a group and that's exactly what we'll see um, if this legislation is passed. Very interesting. I'm I'm thinking a lot of our listeners, potentially architects, city makers, they're going to be thinking what what can they do to facilitate safe 
protests in public spaces, for example. Um, you know, is this something like a bit like climate change, a bit like the retrofit agenda? Is this something that the professions should be using their collective power to make a stand about? You know, really uh, impacting on their clients and saying, you know, these are these are the terms that you these are the spaces we need to create. There's things that designers can do by withdrawing their labour, right? Ultimately, architects are, are workers and their, their most powerful tool doesn't come from um, their their skill of designing something really funky. It, it's more as uh, their ability to withdraw that, that labour from the workforce and through boycotting something, force change that way. Um, and there's certainly examples of, of what's called hostile architecture, so that's sort of anti-homelessness spikes or benches that you can't lie down on, um, which uh, it would be very welcome um, uh, if more architects refused to go anywhere near that kind of work. Just, you know, don't have any part of it. You know, get, get someone else to do that. Um, and I think if enough designers uh, participated in that, in that kind of, you know, essentially industrial action, then it would become harder to commission that kind of um, anti-public space, hostile architecture that, that kind of makes the city that bit more grim for the most vulnerable people. Um, but in terms of um, how to make a, a, a public space that's kind of safe from um, bills like this this bill that we're discussing, that's very hard. And uh, I don't think that design on its own is ever going to be able to to kind of undo a bill like this. So really, the, this, if listeners want to do something about this bill, it, it's about campaigning. It's about writing to your MP. It's about um, uh, joining some of these kill the bill protests. Uh, it's a, not kidding yourself that uh, design on its own is, is, is going to have what it, it takes to, to solve this one. And and then, Una, just a quick question to you. I mean, you've been on the front line of a number of street protests around, say, climate change, many, many issues. I mean, what did you learn from these experiences? Um, I mean, a lot, but I think a key thing for me, a very formative uh, thing that I learned was police don't keep people safe. Um, really, the scariest moments of my life have been at protests, the moments when I thought I genuinely could be killed have been at protests due to police violence um seeing scenes exactly like we saw at the vigil on Saturday night so I mean you learn about you learn about how the criminal justice system is invested in protecting the status quo when you go on protests um and you learn about the kind of violence and harassment that is actually doled out to marginalized communities on a daily basis so that was a big learning experience for me our second item has been the focus of thousands of tweets and possibly hundreds of news and opinion articles but is also so far yet to be discussed in london's architecture media it relates to the vigil held on clapham common last saturday following the death of sarah everard which ended in the police detaining mourners forcing women to the ground and four arrests Everard was a 33-year-old marketing executive who went missing walking home at night from Clapham Common to her home in Brixton. Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins has been accused of kidnapping and murdering her. Last Saturday, thousands of women and people from the local community spontaneously gathered at the Clapham Common bandstand to leave flowers and to peacefully express their grief. The event 
prohibited by the Metropolitan Police despite the coronavirus laws containing an implicit guarantee of the right to protest, went ahead peacefully until nightfall when a number of attendees were forcibly detained by the Met. Images of the police holding women to the ground were shared widely across social media, provoking condemnation across the political spectrum and calls for Met Chief Cressida Dick to resign. The forceful policing in London contrasted with other cities across the country where vigils proceeded without interruption and even well-documented football celebrations in the weeks earlier. Writing in the New Statesman, columnist Stephen Bush asked why London's police force cannot, at the very least, treat a vigil with the sensitivity that Glasgow's police force managed to extend to a league triumph. Writing on Twitter, Edit, a collective of feminist architects and designers, said, Sarah Everard's case and the aggressive police reaction to it after a serving officer was arrested for her murder reminds us that the British criminal justice system is no ally in the fight against male violence. Verso Books has meanwhile published a free digital version of Feminist City by Leslie Kern to help designers of our cities think deeper. The book says, Fear restricts women's lives. It limits our use of public spaces, shapes our choice about work, and keeps us in what is perhaps an actual paradox, dependent on men as protectors. Una, what's this all about? Do these events show us, as Edit claims, that the British criminal justice system is no ally in the fight against male violence? Um, yeah, <laughs> that is what I think these events show us. But not for the first time. I think it's been uh, it's been interesting to see the shift in con consciousness that's kind of happened following the vigils. So the discourse um, around Sarah Everard's murder kind of went from this place of we're not safe in public um, and there's not enough enforcement, there aren't enough police. Not everyone was saying this, but a lot of that was, was the popular discourse. And seeing what happened at the vigil really shifted that into a kind of new understanding of the police's uh, function in society. But of course, there are lots of people who for a long time have been um, aware that the police don't keep them safe. So for example, women who have unstable migration status um, cannot rely on the police to protect them from violence or anything else because they're at risk of deportation if they report to the police. Um, similarly with sex workers who have experience of uh, being raided by the police, being arrested by the police, experiencing violence from the police, um, can't rely on the police to keep them safe. Um, women who have experienced domestic violence have been failed over and over again by police. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a long history that shows us that the criminal justice system doesn't actually keep, um, keep people safe from violence and particularly fails at keeping women safe from domestic violence. Um, and it's been interesting to kind of see this play out in a way that makes it so clear to people. The edit statement, it goes on to say that uh, police violence is a constant and ongoing threat, particularly to people of colour, queer people, working class people and other oppressed groups. Um, I mean, Finn, if we look at the built environment and the way it's designed, it, could we think that is it possibly contributing to some of this violence? Yes. Yeah, I, I think the built environment does put people at risk, but not always in the way that um, the Twitter sphere or the police even would 
tell you that it puts them at risk. And one of the things that that edit statement, this group of feminist designers pointed out is that often women are more at risk of violence from men uh, in the home, you know, at home, at risk of violence from a partner, from a family member, from a, a friend who's a male um, than they are in public. Actually, public space is safer statistically. And that is not a, um, a kind of reality that's reflected in the way that we talk about public space. There's a kind of slightly romanticized assumption that home is a safe space and that nothing bad happens in houses or flats and it's out there. It's the public realm that is scary. And obviously what has happened to Sarah Everard in public space is horrific and tragic. But if we want to have a serious conversation about which parts of the built environment are the places where um, uh, women are most at risk of male violence, we have to actually be talking more about the the domestic sphere. And that's a really difficult um, point to make because uh, people want to believe that they are safe at home. It's, It's a very terrifying kind of reality to confront protecting ourselves from the outside world is sometimes the wrong impulse if uh, we're trying to have a conversation about what makes us safer from from the sort of endemic male violence that we see, you know, across Britain. Sexual violence kind of um, plays two roles, plays a dual role in our society. So there's the reality of sexual violence, violence against women, um, domestic abuse. Um, and that reality is that it's used to maintain power structures, it's used to maintain patriarchal power structures in work, uh, in the family. Uh, it's it's kind of this way of regulating, controlling women, keeping them in specific roles um, and keeping men in positions of power. So that's the reality of it. But it also plays a symbolic role in which, although it goes on all the time um, and is condoned, encouraged by our structures, encouraged by this uh, kind of controlling version of what we think, what we're taught romance is. Um, It plays a symbolic role of being like the most monstrous thing that could possibly happen and is only done by monstrous, like almost alien men. And that symbolic role is really, um, really, really beneficial to a government that wants to bring in authoritarian measures because that allows them to go okay we need more police we need more prisons because we need to catch these kind of monsters that are lurking in alleyways and bushes and are just individually horrific and have nothing to do with our society when we're having this conversation about public space and bearing in mind um the really important points that finn's made about private space I think we have to consider that that is the symbolic role that's going on and when when we're constantly talking about public space when we're constantly emphasizing this fear of that kind of monster who uh, is waiting to pounce on you in the street then we're at risk really of of enforcing this symbolic role and, and ignoring the actual reality if you look at how the government has responded to this, okay, they're saying things like they want to increase funding for street lighting and CCTV. They're saying things like they want to have undercover police 
going into nightclubs and bars. I mean, are they possibly missing the point here about what's being said about the larger structural failings around male violence against women? They're completely missing the point, yes. There's no evidence for street lighting and CCTV um, having an impact on violence against women. It's not some simple sort of, you know, design fix. Um, the undercover police in nightclubs and bars um, is just one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I mean, we're still in the midst of an inquiry into the uh, undercover police spies in movements um, who deceived women into relationships for years, who uh, had children with women. Um, and the women who are fighting for justice say they feel that they've been raped by the state. So this idea of having undercover police patrolling nightclubs and bars. No, I think the point that protesters are making, that people like Sisters Uncut um, and many others are making, is that this is about this is about structures and cultures so we need to understand what it is what goes on that would make someone um do something as harmful and as horrific as um as the murder of sarah everard and other women um and these are much bigger questions and they rely on investing in a society that supports people so it's things like transforming education um transforming the way that we um educate both men particularly men but both men and women um on gender and power it's also about the structures that maintain patriarchy um so when we're talking about violence, uh, particularly in the private sphere, then that's things like the pay gap, that's things like stable housing, um, that's things like having a stable immigration status and not being at risk of uh, deportation. All these things trap women, um, sorry, trap people into abusive relationships and, um, and feed violence. So these are the things that campaigners are asking for. I mean, even also the basic things like just funding women's services, funding refuge, funding anti-violence services. I mean, at the same time as we're seeing all these calls for additional policing, longer sentences, the funding for the services that would support survivors of violence are just being stripped away. So I think that tells us that government actions are not about um, addressing violence against women. They're about boosting a system that benefits the government and, and um, other people with power. Another critical aspect of this story is of course violence, specifically male violence, which many women and men fear while out and about in public space, especially late at night. In the days following Everard's disappearance, many women took to the internet to share the tactics they routine, routinely used to make themselves feel safer in public space. For example, texting locations to friends, checking the routes taxis are taking, walking longer routes home to avoid secluded areas, and so on. Una, Finn, what do you make of all this? Is it a good thing that male violence is at the centre of national debate? Do you think this moment could lead to real change? For me, this is a really, this is a, a tricky question. I think it's important to look at the reasons why Sarah Everard's case have, has kind of 
gone viral for want of a better phrase there are you know i mean people keep saying that it's rare for things like this to happen um i don't for me it's not rare enough there are plenty of examples of uh women who have been killed in similar ways under similar circumstances but we never heard anything about them and i think we have to ask why that is but i think when we take the kind of total sum of of violence and harassment towards women in public spaces and then we uh put up this case as representative of it we're actually missing a lot of the dynamics we're missing um the aspects of class the aspects of race um that might be involved in harassment and being unsafe um in public space i think una's points are spot on but i am glad that male violence has taken the spotlight to some extent because I do think it's it's really important that men um, are held to account for their, uh, their, 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 their actions and um, uh, for a long we see we see kind of like attempts to hold men to account through kind of slightly dumb proxy battles maybe culture war battles over things like first person shooter games or rap music uh, with aggressive lyrics which kind of come nowhere near um the the sort of the actual problem of male violence um which is uh far more um systemic far more endemic and and far more kind of tricky to to tease out than sort of these kind of silly cultural battles o- o- over whether Eminem is, is, is making people more violent or not. Um, so I'm glad that male violence is, is, is at the centre of the spotlight. And I, I think I, I, I feel kind of optimistic and potentially there could be a really strong coalition between men and women who are both afraid of male violence. You know, m- m- most of the, m- the men I know are also terrified of m- other men. Um, walking home at night alone gripping your keys tightly in case you get attacked running away if if you're scared taking a less secluded route those are all things that a lot of men do as well and i'm not trying to sort of flag that up as a like um what about the men's or not all men type point it's more that this could be a real kind of watershed moment um in the national debate because it it could kind of uh allow men and women to join forces in condemning calling out and and ultimately getting rid of of um, horrific male violence. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think there is there is an opportunity here. And obviously, you know, male violence is there's a spotlight on male violence for a reason. Like this is the the overwhelming. I when I saw that stat that ninety seven women ninety seven percent of women have experienced harassment in public, I was like, who are these magical three percent? What these unicorns that haven't experienced harassment i don't i don't believe three percent of women exist that haven't experienced harassment in public so of course it is there i think this the the coalition that you're talking about is necessary and it needs it requires a level of um self-reflection particularly i think from uh women with privilege and particularly from from white women i think it's difficult i think to read i've read things like um you know, women are under curfew. I saw a, Ka- a Catelyn Moran headline that was like, let's put all men under curfew. I don't know if she was joking or not. I hope she was joking because that is an absurd suggestion. Um, but her point was, we're al- women are already under curfew. And I understand the point that she's trying to make there and I understand where that comes from. 
But for someone to say that when we're in a position where uh, for years, large parts of London have been under Section 60, which means that police can stop and search people at any point without reasonable suspicion. So there are huge parts of the population that can't leave the house without fear of police harassment. Um, They could be stopped and searched at any moment arrested um treated violently and i think it is it's if we get into this kind of habit of saying this is only women um or kind of coming out with things like we're already under curfew and not recognizing how that might link you to other marginalized groups then we're at risk of kind of really legitimizing the kind of authoritarian measures that this government is trying to bring in at the moment. Our third and final item has been covered across the architecture media, including in the AJ, which has been leading demands for more retrofit. It's all to do with French architects Lacaton Vassal, famous for saying, never demolish, never remove or replace, always add, transform and reuse, being awarded the prestigious $100,000 Pritzker Prize. Co-founded by Anne Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Vassal, the firm is well known for famously, when asked to redesign a Bordeaux square, telling the client no change was necessary, instead just suggesting putting in some new gravel. The practice is well known for its economical approach to upgrading existing social housing, which has allowed more homes to be expanded and improved without any demolition, relocation or even temporary decanting of residents while the works are completed. Considered one of the grandest and at times most influential awards in architecture, previous Pritzker winners have included Britain's James Sterling, Norman Foster, Richard Rogers and Zaha Hadid. This is the first time it has been awarded to architects explicitly working to transform people's lives and the environment using as little money and intervention as possible. Anne Lacaton is one of only five women to win or share the award and the 30, and that is in the 42 years since it was established. Una, what's this all about? Could architects like these who describe the demolition of people's homes as an act of violence represent a way forward for the profession when it comes to designing safe, equitable cities for everyone? I mean, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm all for not demolishing people's homes. (laughs) Sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, it's kind of mad that you have to even say those words in that order. Right. It it sort of tells us something about um, the state of contemporary architecture that so often demolishing people's homes is like the first step and then maybe you get some architecture later down the line <laughs> like it shouldn't be radical to not demolish people's <laughs> homes no it really shouldn't but at this point it it kind of is isn't it i guess um you know particularly with london we've got the city that is just sort of like driven by this process of gentrification of like flattening everything and building new things and dispersing people for the the interests of business clearly this is quite a sort of sensitive economical environmental approach that's being sent that's being celebrated here and sometimes architectural culture has been criticized for being a bit out of touch you know for not giving enough awards to social housing for example 
um yeah this is the complete opposite i mean does does this show that um you know things like pritzker and, and the kind of architectural establishment are really shaping up to represent the challenges society's facing right now you know giving the pritzker to lacton vassal is a profound shift in the kind of values and the priorities of the international architecture world right so architecture uh, normally it's a bit like the art world it's kind of a little bit obsessed with things being new with the kind of hype that comes with things being original or innovative and sometimes that's cool and you get you know particularly exciting original new building but often it just means um sort of invention for invention's sake and this this endless parade of of glitchy weird shaped um sort of skyline bling uh, which doesn't really have an environmental or a social uh, agenda at all um, and uh, to give the Pritzker Prize which really is kind of the most coveted award in the industry to a firm that mostly are known for <laughs> refurbishing stuff like not not building things from scratch at all um, it seems to be like, I don't know, like a real vote of confidence in a much more humble idea of what architecture could be. Like It's not about these kind of blingy skyline baubles at all. Maybe it's just about a kind of very normal, very everyday, uh, very kind of caring type of architect who just kind of um, gradually improves bits of the city by, you know, giving someone a, a small extension to their balcony here or some better insulation there. Um gradually improving uh the streets for everybody rather than uh throwing up um kind of sexy towers for the few i mean it's often said that architecture accounts for around 40 percent of carbon emissions and, and over the next 10 years only seven percent of those emissions will actually come from the operation of new buildings the vast majority of that 40 percent is actually all to do with um architecture's carbon emissions coming from things like heating and lighting of existing buildings but also the enormous amount of energy expended through the demolition of buildings and the construction of new ones um, so clearly the most effective way of bringing down carbon emissions in architecture therefore is just a combination of two simple strategies that is radically reducing demolition and new construction uh, while also dramatically improving the energy efficiency of existing buildings so in that context you know could Lacaton Vassal's approach represent an architectural solution to the entire climate crisis yes potentially you know it genuinely is that exciting building is one of the most polluting activities that takes place in um, the economy uh, currently it takes about a ton of co2 to build one square meter of new building and, and the sector as a whole is emitting about 185 megatons of carbon every year or, or equivalent greenhouse gases. Um, so to meet our to meet Britain's obligations under the Paris Accords, that 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 needs to halve by 2025 and then it needs to halve again by 2050, which is going to be extremely difficult for an industry that is so slow moving. Um, so building from scratch is a really difficult thing to do and and remain within our kind of carbon budget um from the paris accords um but if we take you know one of lacquer Vassal's most well-known projects uh, it's a 96 apartment block uh, that was built in the 50s um and it had been terribly refurbished in the 90s and uh, the council the municipality wanted to knock it down and Lacton Vassal and uh, Frederick Drouot uh, 
who's another French architect, went to them and said, you know, instead of spending all that money on knocking this building down and, and building another building for all those 96 um, families, let's take that money and instead spend it on just bolting on some winter gardens and some nice balconies onto the outside of the existing tower. And in doing that, they, um, they gave every resident loads, loads of indoor space. They gave every resident a massive new balcony that they hadn't had before. They had better insulation. They had huge windows. Uh, it cost 62% less than the demolition approach would have done. But most importantly, uh, it runs on six, the, build, the new building now runs on 60% less energy and took 72% less energy to refurbish compared to the, the, the knock it down and start again approach. So that is an example of how you can um, halve and halve again the carbon uh, impact of, 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 of architecture is by um, having these sort of epic, sexy retrofitting projects where you bolt cool balconies onto buildings rather than knocking down. And if you think of London, um, we have uh, a substantial amount of amazing post-war housing, which uh, is a bit run down. You know, uh, it's been around for a bit. It's not been very well maintained. It does need some sort of sprucing up. And what a lot of councils seem to be doing is saying, well, you know, we we can't afford to spruce it up. So we'll knock it down. We'll rebuild the entire estate. We'll then sell off some of that estate. That will bring us some money in that we can use to kind of cover the costs of all that uh, incredibly expensive demolition and reconstruction. And what the Lacaton Vassal approach says is, no, don't do that. Don't knock it down. It's actually cheaper to refurbish it with these sort of skillful additions that can enhance the lives of the people who live there and the uh, the fabric of the building while costing you less money, costing you less energy and emitting less carbon. It's a sort of quadruple, quintuple win for everybody involved. So it won't surprise listeners that the awarding of this year's prize to Anne Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Fassal has been widely celebrated across social media. Um, but Una... Does uh, this award, does it go any way to address the sort of structural inequalities of an award which has been granted to so many more men than women during its lifetime? I mean, <laughs> it's it's a representation question, isn't it? It's like representation versus structure. And I think it's never, we're never going to address patriarchal structures by just kind of uh, giving more awards to more to more women the really exciting outcome of giving the award to Anne Lagardon and Jean-Philippe um, is not that Anne is a woman and that like helps to bring the Pritzker Prize you know more in line with the 21st century or something uh, it's that their work has a positive impact on the effects of thousands of ordinary French people and if we were to take that approach seriously and apply it to um British architecture and London architecture, then we would massively improve the lives of working class Londoners, middle class Londoners, just Londoners in general, who are being priced out of their estates, which are then being knocked down and sold off um, routinely, because we don't seem to be able to muster the creativity to come up with better approaches. There is a better approach. It's just across the channel. They've just won the Pritzker Prize. We've got no excuses left. Let's stop knocking down the Aylesbury estate and uh, do some refurbishment instead. 
I think this is such a good example as well of like how you can think about public safety in a way that's broader than just like we're just gonna have more police which doesn't com like contribute to public safety like the political class in this country have no political imagination it's like any problem that ever happens it's just we'll chuck more police at it more police more prisons but like as you say this is something would actually improve lives if you have um less transient communities uh, people are more stable in their housing it's easier to just like get to know your neighbors to form to form good relationships to look out for one another to care for one another um and you have a a safer more enjoyable living environment these are all things that contribute to public safety um and they're things that never ever get mentioned in the discourse of public safety so this is just one of those one of the many 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 like wonderful imaginative ways that we can think about public safety um without having to have this awful conversation around laws and enforcement and violence fantastic well it's been an immense pleasure uh, being joined by you both on the London uh, this evening um you know where can, where can listeners uh, keep up to speed on on some of the things you're working on? Where where should they look to to read your articles or or hear your tweets and things like that? Um, I'm not on Twitter anymore. The best thing that I did for myself in 2020 was I deleted Twitter and I downloaded TikTok, and I would highly recommend that to everyone. But if you want to read more about some of the ideas that uh, I've been talking about. These are abolitionist ideas about removing resources from the criminal justice system and putting those resources into wonderful projects like the architecture we were just talking about that would actually contribute to public safety. Uh, you can go to abolitionistfutures.com. There's a kind of uh, a blog that keeps you up to date with abolitionist issues, but also reading lists of uh, introductions to kind of understanding the criminal justice system and police violence. Um, and also a huge part of that is understanding things like sexual violence and domestic violence. Obviously, like, these are some of the most uh, difficult forms and, and most insidious forms of harm in our society. So that's um, obviously a big question about how we keep each other safe if the criminal justice system doesn't keep us safe which it doesn't so that's one place you can go um i do or i did have a podcast called the lockdown which you can find on navarra media's website and that's got a bunch of episodes on a whole array of issues um relating to criminal justice system and abolitionist approaches well thanks very much and thanks again uh, both of you for joining the show this week uh, it's been very interesting and um Look forward to welcoming you on the show again in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Merlin. Thank you, Merlin. See you soon. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show bringing you the big stories in architecture and the built environment in London each week created by Open City. If you want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed tonight, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues in depth and many more too. You can tweet at the London using the hashtag LNDDWN or at Open City London. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London and its architecture more open, accessible and equitable. Hey. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.